Hello and welcome to this year's final edition of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. What up, folks? Uh, it's Gabriel here, Liberty Longboy, and Lur Liberty. Yeah, boy. So um, we are pretty excited, uh, but for many reasons. For many reasons. First, let me tell you a sad story. Last week we recorded a podcast for you. And, and it was a pretty good podcast. Yeah, I've got it. Was, s- it was better than our average podcast. Yeah, it was better than average. And we put in a lot of prep. And I think that's part of the reason for that. And uh, Nicola- not, not going to be so lucky on this one. <laughs> <laughs> this is a year ender. And uh, after an hour, we also kept the time quite strict. I said, thank you so much for listening and stay safe. Uh, load shedding has just been announced. Boom. And the power cut off. And so the file was corrupted. And yep. so that podcast is now lost to the, the nether time. Yes. Okay. So that's the, s- the only thing of note for me was when I gross, uh, gloated like a greasy pig about Kamala Harris dropping out of the American presidential race. Yeah. Nick was happy about that. And I said, well, he said actually himself because he's a smart guy who even when gloating maintains his <laughs> uh, bonhomie and perspicacity <laughs> that Kamala Harris might not totally be out of it because uh, there are some who might like to see her as a vice president on their ticket. Yep. But we... I don't know if I did say that, but that sounds like a clever thing to say. So I'm going to claim credit for it. You said it, Nick. (laughs) Okay. Here we are uh, the day after the UK election and the last day of work. And there's a sort of coincidence there. The full moon. Yep. As well. The sun has emerged. From the clouds. From... Weeks and weeks of heavy there's, rain. There's sunny brightness to the air. It's not too hot. Mm. It's not too cold. Mm. It's just lowly. Yeah. So the, the truth is that Nicholas and I uh, both said we're going to put our... Oh, we made a prediction about the... Yeah. On, the on the block and make a, a clear no Amanar prediction about what the result of this election is going to be. And we both predicted that the Tories would come out with 40-seat majority. Nicholas, you, how close did we come? Um, I think we're around about there. Uh, I, I know it's always a little bit complicated because Sinn Féin doesn't take up their seats. So their sort of official majority is actually bigger than, uh, than, than, than what we predicted. But I think in absolute terms, if you include the Sinn Féin people, it's about 40. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. These two gentlemen... Uh, we got it right. We actually got something right. We got right. something right. We're not completely stupid. Yeah. To the shock of many. Can you believe it? I to, Certainly to the shock of everyone in this room. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, I think you've been following this about as closely as anyone in the office. Well, uh, except for Herman. Alongside Herman. Yeah. Herman has been watching this with a degree of... Uh, actually, there were large parts of this where I was so nervous that I just tuned it out for uh, like a week. Because I'd be like, no, 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 this is too stressful. Yeah. And there was a, there was, you know, you know, being a sort of more uh, right-leaning guy, I listened to things like the Spectator podcast and that kind of thing. And uh, there was a lot of, I think, actually dishonest fear-mongering on the right about how likely a Corbyn victory was. And that was specifically for a tactical reason, which is, I mean, partly it was an emotional feeling, but also a calculated one that they were scared that Corbyn would win the election and that this would be the end of the United Kingdom for you know years to come and so this is a wondrous thing that's that, that's happened and and they, they they drove this fear they they said oh corbyn could win you need to go out and make sure you vote and that kind of thing and vote the people did mm. uh the conservatives only went up about what uh, i think it was about 1.5 percent in the sort of popular vote um to 43 percent of the vote uh but the way the constituency math breaks down they ended up with a winning, I think, like 60 seats or something like that. And I think one of the things that uh, people are probably going to talk about is how unfair the constituency system is. There's yeah. a sort of perennial complaint about uh, representative democracy. That's not purely proportionally based. Considering uh, that the uh, Lib Dems got, what, um, 11% of the vote, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and they lost two seats. Yeah. They went up by 4% of the vote and they lost two seats. Yeah. The Scottish National Party got just under 4% of the vote and yet has 50 seats. So, And to give a rough sense of uh, what the argument is for holding on to constituencies, it's partly that it to some degree mitigates the importance of parties 
and places some emphasis on individual MPs. And I think it, that's it, part of the reason that it's so important talking about the Lib Dems, that the particular seat that it lost was the one that it lost. Yes, it, uh, it lost actually, I think, two, but then gained one. So it had net and minus one. But one of the ones it lost was its leader's seat in Scotland, lost to the Scottish National Party. So that was the, the young leader, Joe Swinson, who actually started the campaign as the most popular of the three big parties, uh, leaders, and ended the campaign... Not even able to hold on to her little thing. Yeah. And so that's not about national advertising. That's not about uh, Facebook or the Russians or, you know, any of the uh, kinds of broader complaints about party politics. So, so much of narrowing it down to a few thousand people means that it's about the ability of one person to convince mm. that constituency yeah, that she deserves to go back to parliament versus the Scottish nationalists saying, no, something's going wrong here. One Especially given... Uh, Sorry, the fact that both the Scottish Nationalist Party and the Lib Dems are Remainers on the on the major issue. Yes, of the yes, day. yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I really like about systems like the Electoral College and the uh, constituency system, obviously, uh, there are some problems. I do think the British system should be probably reformed a bit. Um, maybe have some proportionality brought into it, a little bit like our system, but not completely, because I think there's a useful function in when your political body has to get a variety of geographic areas which means almost always different types of people to 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 vote in a government so in america for example you can't just win city dwelling uh elites basically yeah. you have to also win steel workers or farmers or you know black voters in a certain area or that kind of thing you can't you you have to build these coalitions of multiple interest groups um, which is what's actually kind of nice about the electoral college so that means that you prevent a situation where you have a very particular type of person like a particular class mm. that just dominates Mm. the election with you know 51% majority every single time. Yeah, it somewhat checks the potential tyranny of the majority. <laughs> but obviously th there's yeah. one interest. I mean, just basically the most basic sort of abstract example is if we were to set a tax rate mm. where mm. Uh, the top 49% income earners would have almost all of their income taken away and given to the bottom 51%. Yes. That would if that was the only issue people cared about and enough advertising and and fearmongering and whatever could mm -hmm. get them to that place, then you could theoretically have a situation where you do that kind of thing. That's checked by the fact that uh, an electoral college system sort of or, or a constituency system this yeah. constituency oh, of course that can go too far you, yeah or as, as gerrymandering uh, yeah gerrymandering can happen and also of course you can have tragic consequences from that like in South Africa in 1948 when the rural areas were overrepresented by the constituency system and that returned a nationalist government despite the fact they lost the popular vote by quite a large margin yeah. Um, so I think the ideal system is a balance between those two forces. I think the Electoral College in America is actually quite close to that. As some people have done, uh, there's a guy called CPG Gray who's done some YouTube videos about how, oh, if you win, you can win the Electoral College vote with 22% of the popular votes or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think it kind of, you, you realize the weakness in that argument when you think about it's been 200 years and that's mm. never even come close to really happening. Mm. Um, and I think that's because... Uh, the system is firstly a little bit more balanced to population than he gives it credit for. And secondly, if you you, you can't just win 50% in Iowa and then get zero in New York or something like that. That's not really how elections and populations work. Yeah. Um, you know, if, you, if you're building a coalition of different groups across the country, you're going to get quite a lot of support across the board, as a, you know, even if it's not strictly 51%. So, but to go back to Joe, Joe Swinson, yes. this Liberal Democrat leader who's now lost her seat, mm. Um, does she lose her position as the leader of the party? I think she has resigned as, as leader of the party. I'm not okay. actually 100% sure I need to So here's, here's one reason that I think that's very important. Um, is that one of the... F I think something that everyone should be afraid of because the UK's economy is the what biggest in the world? Fifth. Yeah, it's top five. Fifth or sixth. Yeah. Could be six. Um, is, is that... No, Joe Swinson has quit now. Good. Okay, so for an economy that big to become politically screwed up would affect the rest of the world and big trading partners like us even more so. Um, and the way that it could be screwed up is for Brexit to be the only issue that people care about or vote on. And in particular, the UK context, this has been called Ulsterization because what happened in Northern Ireland is that the big issue, the biggest single issue became 
do we want to stay part of the British colony, the British Empire, the United Kingdom, whatever you want to call it, or do we want to decolonize and become part of the Ireland. Republic of Ireland oh. or become independent? And so you had the separatists, uh, the decolonists, and you had the unionists, the colonists, the imperialists, whatever you want to call them. Well, the, 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 what are the terms they prefer, prefer themselves, unionists and republicans? Yeah, that's how they like to think of it. And it is, or nationalists. Yeah. So because that issue was so important, that sort of became the only issue that the parties were defined by and the only issue that really energized voters. And whenever you have that situation, uh, you have the incentive for private players or nasty bureaucrats to get in there with bad ideas, which in the short, mid or long run would usually eventually land them in electoral trouble um, because voters would be like, look, this is really not working out or look, we think you're violating a basic principle of human decency or of freedom or our prosperity is not working, unemployment's not working out the way we like it. There's cause and effect. You have some cause brought to bear and then you have some effect and that effect upon the body politic then changes the, the government's line. None of that has to happen mm. because all people care about, all people vote on is union or is remain, yeah. remain or leave. Remain or leave, yeah. And so the worry was, and I think remains to a certain extent, but is mitigated by this election, that Brexit has been so dominating and has been mm. so the thing that Parliament talks <coughs> about and that uh, the media sort of whips up uh, interest in that this election is basically going to be decided by whether you're a, a Remain voter or a Leave voter and the rest is going to be sort of very minor detail. Um, and I think that for, 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 for Swinson to lose that seat mm. where her opposition can't go after her on that basic question yes. of remain or leave shows a sensitivity to something else. Mm. Um, uh, on, the in, on the inverse side, well, in uh, the you were talking about this other very interesting particular seat. Uh, tell us about the, the, that uh, uh, mining seat created yeah, yeah. in the 30s. Uh, the 50s, actually, sorry. I, I originally got it a little bit wrong. Um, I think it's called Blinth Valley. Uh, it's in the northeast, so it's been a labor stronghold since it was created in the 1950s. Of England. Yeah. It, is, it has been uh, voting Labour since the 1950s solidly. Never any real doubt about that. The Tories won it for the first time in history. And so uh, a lot of people on the Labour side have been tempted to say, oh, you know, we got abandoned by the sort of working class voters because they wanted Brexit, especially in the northeast, um, while, you know, we wanted to remain. But that's not quite true because actually very broadly across a lot of the country, uh, they did badly, even in a lot of Remain areas, mm -hmm. the Labour Party. And that's because Jeremy Corbyn was an unpopular leader. They, uh, I think he was alienated from the working class, despite his sort of union sympathies. Despite and his bad his, shoes. And his bad shoes and stuff. They saw him as being the kind of Marxist academic professor who's never stood in a picket line, who's never fought really for the workers. He's a student politician who's like 70 or however old yeah. he is. And so there was that sort of cultural isolation. Um, also, Boris was very clever. He said, we're actually going to spend more. We're going to go after crime and uh, law and order, which is always popular with uh, poorer people who often have to deal with the consequences of crime on their lives more. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, we're going to spend more on the NHS, which in Britain is basically the religion. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, uh, uh, by, by, by promising to protect that, the labor attacks of he's going to privatize the NHS, which is a... As far as I'm concerned, pretty outrageous. Yeah. Um, it was this claim that they'll sign some sort of free trade deal with America, which will sell off the whole NHS. Yeah, well, it is leveraged off the fact that when Donald Trump came for a visit, he said, um, everything's on the table. It's his nature to yeah, sort of opening bargaining position. Yeah, Donald Trump never says specific things. Yeah. He always just talks in these like ridiculous And they're like, oh, well, but I think they knew that. And they thought, well, what we can say is Donald Trump wants to do a trade deal with the UK. Yeah. Which everyone... Uh, one of the things that frustrated me about this election is that The Economist said uh, yesterday in a video about what to expect from the election is that it said, their, 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 their correspondent said, literally all economists agree that Brexit is going to be a terrible hit on the economy. And Big there is, there, well, there's, a, there's one version, there's one disambiguation of that phrase, which is true. I think there's no way to say that trade relations between Europe and the, and the UK aren't going to adjust in 
the short term in some negative direction. For if sure. by Brexit you mean especially a crash out Brexit, if you mean anything other than the most optimal possible deal for trade relations between those two yeah, countries, yeah. then there's going to be a short term negative effect there. For sure. But most people when they hear Brexit and most people when they hear hits on the economy are thinking in, in broader terms, mm. uh, in, in, in longer time spans. I mean, I and, the, and the jury's very much out on the credibility of economists who said just discussing Brexit is going to send Britain into recession. And it's very much out on what's going to happen afterwards because the UK can uh, crack good deals going in after this and, and thereby be able to um, actually lift economic uh, growth. And one of the things that I think all economists are looking at, even if they uh, sort of analyze it differently, is the possibility of a really strong trade deal between the UK and the US post-Brexit. Yeah. Um, and that would be very good. And for maybe also with South Africa. Yeah. That'd be very good for both sides. But I think to ameliorate that potential upswing of mm -hmm. Brexit from Labour, they wanted to emphasize they somehow needed to put a fly in that ointment. Mm. Look, okay, one of the good things that could come out of Brexit is we do a nice trade deal with the US, but here's two terrible things about the US. One is they're represented by Donald Trump, so doing anything with them it's makes you wrong. immoral evil, and yes. evil. And the other thing is that if you do a trade deal with the US, they're going to come and privatize government hospitals yeah. or medicine or whatever. Through the back door, through the sneaky, cunning deal with the evil, rich, greedy Tories with their monocles and their top hats. Yeah, and so both of those things, but especially starting with the, 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 the motivation for looking for the fly in the ointment and then the fact that you've got the Trump distortionary effect sort of means that it never had to be a realistic accusation mm. for them to think it would work to alienate working class people because one of the terrible things about these 70-year-old student politicians faux academics, is they all think that the people that they're ap appealing to are much stupider than they are. Yes. All those politicians think, you know, when they finish their rallies, in their heart of hearts, I feel like they go back and they're like, thank God these people are so dumb that even I can convince them to vote for me. <laughs> and people just aren't that dumb, and so they didn't care as much about it. Well, that was that was one of the weird things about this election. You know, here's this sort of like eaten, eaten boy, tough... Uh, who constantly quotes the classics and Greek literature and stuff. We can Johnson. speak Latin. We, are, we can speak Latin. Wandering around the northeast, working class labor seats of, of the UK in England. And uh, truck drivers and lorry drivers saying, we're going to get Brexit done, right? You're gonna, we're, we're backing you all the way. And either, you know, the Conservative Party make a big deal of all those things. And as it turned out, there was a very real movement behind mm. those videos. Mm. Um and that is quite a sight to behold, but it shows that uh, it, you know there was some shakeup from Brexit, but it wasn't the whole story, as as we said. Yeah. It was it was yeah. a, it was a it was a fusion of the the Brexiteer stuff and the Corbyn stuff. I mean, even on immigration, a lot of people have cast uh, Johnson, uh, even people who are normally quite friendly to him, as being anti-immigration. But I think it's not really true. Um, he said a points-based system, which is the same thing that Canada and Australia have. Australia's maybe a little bit more hostile to immigrants. Canada's more friendly to immigrants. A points-based system by itself um, is not anti-immigration. It's yeah. just actually a fairly logical way of organizing Of saying, here's what we want. We yeah. want to get the best out of this as well. And you can also, it's, it's very nice actually because it means you can adjust the criteria of your points. So a points-based immigration system works along the lines of everyone who applies to be a working immigrant has to fulfill certain criteria, which is determined by the government, and they get a score, and then the government admits them in order of the best score to the lowest score. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, if you've got a very low score, for example, you don't speak the local language, you're uneducated, you are old, these things count against you. But the great thing about it is, you know, you can adjust that. So a Labour government can come in and it can say, okay, well, we don't mind if people don't speak English, uh, whereas the Tory government can come in and say, actually, no, we want people to be like from the Anglosphere or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of leeway there. Um, and so, you know, nothing Johnson was proposing was like terribly xenophobic, I don't think. No. Well, I think part of the thing is that the the, the accusation, let's talk about, let's dwell on this, Nicholas, because um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the case for why I don't well, that, think. That's giving me bad vibes, dude. Don't use the word dwell. It sounds too heavy. Let's no, explore it, this. It's about it's about <laughs> racism, and I, and racism is always heavy. So I think that Boris Johnson is falsely accused of being a racist. And one way that you can tell it's false, and that people don't really believe it, or if they do, they've got the wrong idea of what racism is, mm. is uh, the most commonly cited example of his racism is that he said um, that women wearing full hijab look like letterboxes. 
because you've just got the little slit above the eyes and it looks like, you know, uh, the slit in a post box. Now, here's something to know about Boris Johnson. His entire life, he's been very proud of the fact that he's got Turkish ancestry. Yes. Um, so at that, at that, and, you know, one can slip into a Pocahontas kind of Elizabeth Warren thing. <laughs> he never used that uh, claim to, to his Turkish ancestry, which is on his, it's a grandfather, it's not particularly yeah, distant, yeah, yeah. is um, he's never used that to sort of try and get ahead in some application by applying as a minority. No. Um, but he I has mean, he used has it to spice up his sort of exoticness. To spice up his exoticness and I think to send a signal that I'm the kind of person that if you're voting for me, mm. you can't think it's a shame that Turks have uh, some connection in the UK and that Turkish descendants uh, can uh, should should be stopped from going all the way to the top position. Yeah, I think, I think implicit is he's like the epitome of a kind of Englishness. And yet, you know, the kind of English that will that that has the following fun factoid, the which is Turkish. that the most common meal in England was the most the most common Indian dish ordered around the world is chicken tikka masala, which was invented in London <laughs> by dudes from India and their descendants, yeah. literally hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So it's like there is that British cosmopolitan vibe that we like to alienate mm. ourselves. But he was not. Uh, we sort of South African elites like to pretend has disappeared because we're jealous uh, of how much of it's eroding here. But it's very strong in London and uh, very strong in the elite kind of circles that he's swung in. And he and he said by saying repeatedly about his grandfather, he's saying, "Dude, I am proud of this." And anyone who's ashamed of that is has got an issue with me. So at that rhetorical level, that's one thing. Mm. At the same. At what level does the letterbox thing work? Is it about immigration? Is it about him saying we don't want Muslim immigrants here? No. Is it about him saying we don't think that property rights should apply equally to Muslims as it does to Christians? No. Is it about him saying that we need to sort of force people to go to church and not go to or go to sort of religious re-education camps? No. It's not about anything policy-wise to use the legitimate force of the government to change people's lives. It's, it's not very different from when someone says, oh, those crazy Christians and they're doing weird things on Sunday. Happy clappies. Like, yeah, those happy clappies over there who are doing their weird things, praying praying the gay away, that kind of thing. They're not, but I it's think not even as harsh as that, actually. It's not as harsh as that. It's funny. I don't think anyone who's ever heard the phrase has quickly managed to forget it. And it's extremely useful. Here's why it's so funny, in my opinion. Visually, it's a perfect uh, synonymy. It's the kind of thing that you'd only notice if you really looked at Muslim women in hijabs and didn't sort of half shield your brain from taking in what you're seeing through some kind of mistaken political correctness thing of like you know like as if you're looking at something that you better like so 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 you should only half look at it banish those thoughts from your mind it really (laughs) does look like that and at a deeper level it is like that because what a letterbox does is it takes in information you don't send from a letterbox. Uh, the youth listening to this who've, who've, who've never sent a letter in their life might not know. Yes, all five of them. Frankly, I've never sent her in my life. Let- I've sent two letters in my life, so I barely know either, and they mm. weren't from letterboxes. Um, but it's not like WhatsApp where it's a two-way street. A letterbox is just a receiver of information. And for a woman to wear a hijab is much the same. She can see the world, she can hear, but you can't see her facial expression. She's not sending signals of response that way. And you can hardly hear her. It's much harder to hear her because part of how we listen is by looking at each other and also because literally the sound is somewhat muffled by the hijab and it depends on the kind of material you're using. But what he's saying is, I think in a way, Something that I wish all young Muslim girls would hear. Like, if you want to take this up, that's your free choice. But if you do know that one of the effects that this is going to have is that it's going to make you much more of a receiver of information. It's going to make it just that much harder for you to be a sender of information. And if you believe that something that matters about your life is that people hear you and people see you uh, and that you're more like WhatsApp and less like a letterbox, then that's then that's a good message to send. So in other words, I think that 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 this statement uh, is 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 comic first and foremost. Uh, that it's accurate, that it's far from policy, and that it's a comic effect might have a salubrious quality. By contrast, can we talk about Jeremy Corbyn? Because I went into yeah. this thinking, oh no, he's not racist at all, and all of the accusations are totally misplaced. And you and you told me to think again because you have been paying more close attention than me. Yeah. So I'm um, look. I'm not going to pretend like I have been following it super closely, but. Here's what I have seen um, from Jeremy Corbyn kind of on the surface level is that uh, he has uh, s- he appears to have not taken very decisive action against people 
who are using language that I would not be comfortable with. Stuff about how the Zionist media, or sometimes even the Jewish media, controls all the world and runs politics from behind the scenes. There's very sort of old anti-Semitic tropes about how Jews are actually secretly pulling the strings of society. Um, often it's talking about Jews but using the word Zionist. Some people say, oh, he's just they're just being pro-Palestinian, they're only criticizing Zionists. And yet often in these kind of diatribes, by some of the a couple of Labour candidates in various areas who've who've said things like, you know, the Zionists control all the media and that. If you you know, there's very little doubt that they are in context really mean all Jews or most Jews, except those who explicitly put themselves before and you know reject their Jewishness. Um, so he slow walked kind of internal labor investigations into some of those people. Uh, there was a famous yeah. So it's not just words; it, no. it's it's his response it's, it to the investigations action. into those words. Uh, Andrew Neil, I think his name is. Uh, anyway, he's a he's a very tough British interviewer. Read out one of these candidates' statements that they had made in public on Facebook, I think it was, and said, "This person is under investigation by the Labour Party for anti-Semitism." So if he first didn't tell him that, he said, do you think the statement is anti-Semitic? And Corbyn just refused to kind of engage with this. He just said, no, I'm not going to say he kept trying to talk around it. Eventually Mm. he said, okay, yeah, it is kind of anti-Semitic. And then when he said, this guy made the statement like a year ago, and it's clear, no one denies that he said it. Mm. Why have you not taken action against him? Because you yourself have just said it's anti-Semitic. And he just refused to say, he said, oh, it's internal matter, I'm not party to all the details i'm not going to get involved in this but more devastatingly uh he has declared that groups like hamas who explicitly call for the destruction of jews and the jewish state um a very nasty version of ethnic cleansing is mm-hmm. their official policy yeah uh regardless of whether it's targeted at all jews or just the zionists um he said that these people are his friends and he's attended many ceremonies with them He's hailed ones who died in combat against the Israelis as heroes. He, he is, if not an anti-Semite himself, he's very comfortable with anti-Semites. Yeah. And he has been denounced by almost all of the kind of Jewish organizations in Britain. There's been a couple who have said no, but the majority, including I think the chief rabbi of the Jewish community in Britain, have all said this guy is either going to turn a blind eye towards anti-Semitism or is going to actively encourage it. Mm-hmm. And the number of anti-Semitic event, uh, incidents have increased in the Labour Party since he became leader. Mm. Um, there's been also a whole lot of Jewish uh, MPs or leaders who have left Labour and said, it is a toxic place, it's not safe for Jews, Jews are belittled, Jews are treated badly. And this has all happened either under Jeremy, uh, with Jeremy Corbyn's acceptance or because he's too bad a leader to be able to do anything to about control it. it. And that is a big indictment. And that is a, a serious indictment for someone who's trying to lead one of the biggest countries in the world. Yeah, no, it's a problem. So I want to give my theory about why I think Labour has gone down the road that it's gone down. And partly it's because in this podcast we try to say things that have absolutely no connection to South Africa. Yeah, just nothing. Like we're just talking about other things. Yeah. Yeah. So in South Africa, um, one of the things that uh, a lot of political so-called analysts like to forget is that the ANC did a really good job in a lot of ways in its early years. Uh, It inherited a nearly bankrupt country. Inflation was up the wazoo. Interest rates were all wrong. Balance of trade was rubbish. Everything was going wrong pretty much that could go wrong besides the broader sort of self-reflection of the leaders of the apartheid government and realization that this is a really bad idea and moves to try and change that as well as in the broader body politics sort of the the votes to undo apartheid those were really good things and uh the anc was in a very difficult position it had been in the clutches of the communists for decades, mm. having been banned by the Nats, it was just a natural it's thing for them, by to the do, Soviet for them to get funded by the Soviet Union. And a therefore, lot of its members trained in Moscow. Yeah, or in East Germany and so on. Or in East Germany. So, um, but then the Berlin Wall collapsed, 
and Nelson Mandela and a few other really smart pragmatists sort of saw that communism isn't working out so nicely. Maybe if we stick with this, we're going to go the same way as so many failed African states. Maybe we need to look to a better model. At least they temporarily, did, yeah. At least temporarily. And as a result, we ran. We had very tight fiscal discipline. We had really smart monetary discipline. We ran a budget surplus. We had 5% GDP growth for all. Or Three five years, five four years yeah. at five percent, and one and the other year at four and a half percent or so. So that's my whole high school career. My five years at high school, we had massive GDP growth. We had <laughs> the good years, um, uh, lift in standards of living, massive reduction in uh, uh, massive reduction in poverty, some reduction in unemployment, uh, double the number of jobs, and so on and so forth. Mm. Okay, and. The key to that success was that this traditionally ultra-leftist party had managed to isolate the ultra-leftists within it and hew towards the center. Yeah. And then one of the big problems was that Tabo Mbeki had a bad attitude towards HIV and AIDS. That's he, putting it quite mildly. Yeah. <laughs> and... And because of that bad attitude, his credibility was undermined. Mm. And although that bad attitude had nothing to do with his centrist economics or Trevor Manuel, somehow, because the leftists had so the ultra leftists had something to hold against him, they were allowed back into the center of the party, as it were, and to run the party. And they allied with the Zuma faction to, to the tunes that they like. They aligned with the Zuma faction, which was another mistake, and. This is all compounded by the the global financial crisis. So in a comp and and so you have a return of the radical leftist elements who just want to grow government, whether or not state-owned enterprises are collapsing, whether or not the education system is rubbish, whether or not yeah, people on state-owned land are the worst off in this country. Let's increase the state-owned land. The ultra leftist their ultra goals to dismantle capitalism. Yeah, and in a completely unrelated sequence of events, you've got in the nineties. And the 2000s, uh, during my high school era, uh, great success in the United Kingdom under a leftist, traditionally leftist Labour government. Its prime minister is Tony Blair. Uh, he it's been in a bad way in the 80s, but it's come back in the 90s. It's come back in a big way in the 90s. And what it's done is it's seen Margaret Thatcher has gone quite far towards limiting the scope of government, otherwise known as hewing towards the right. And so they've gone towards the centre. And they institute a minimum wage, but they do it at a really, really modest rate. Less than half of the uh, median wage. They, their policies up and down the line are very pragmatist. The way that they're running the NHS. They're not obsessed with trying for the government to run everything. They don't want the government to run anything. They're not talking about how wealthy people are the enemy. They go on about how we're all middle class now. They we're all middle class, we're all in it together. Let's be pragmatic. Let's make sure that we're not spending too much more than we're taking in. Let's worry about that kind of thing. And they win very big majorities. And they dominate stonking majorities. That would make the current one that Johnson's just won looked like not very much. Look pretty I think they had 400 seats in one of those elections in yeah. 2001 or something. They dom They were like the ANC. And Mbeki, 69% of the vote. Okay, what goes wrong? Something completely unrelated to economics, as unrelated as HIV. Tony Blair, through some kind of partly sycophantic relationship to power and to George W. Bush and so on, falls in love. Well, to be fair, maybe he did think it was actually true. He might. It might not even be cynical. You, you, you are right. You are right. I was taking a cheap shot there. I th uh, for, 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 for good or bad reasons, Tony Blair commits the United Kingdom to going to war with Iraq explicitly on the pretense that we're going in there to take out the weapons of mass destruction, yep. weapons which are subsequently found not to exist, and therefore his credibility goes down. And therefore, well, at least not in the way that they said. Yeah. Well, yeah. His credibility goes down, so does the credibility of the party, and so does, as irrational as it is, it makes sense at an esteem level, because esteem, you've got esteem for a whole package. And when the esteem for that whole package goes down, it hurts the esteem of things, even though they're not logically connected. So the, the, the positive esteem that had been associated with centrism goes away, and this starts to make room for the ultimate lefty 70-year-old student protesters 
to start getting their hands yeah. on the levers of power and it doesn't happen overnight. Well, uh, they, yeah, there's a process. I mean, firstly, they have the financial collapse, which also contributes significantly to Puts everything. egg right on the face of all of the people who said, you know, just let the market do what it needs to do. We've got some regulation, not too much regulation. It's all going to work out. I mean, you know, never mind the fact that it was caused by nonsense in, in the U.S. government. In the U.S., again, market. that kind of thing it's kind of, yeah, is logically distinct, but kudonomically in terms yeah. of esteem it's not distinct at all the, the whole the whole system of anyone basically wearing a suit and tie mm. takes a knock mm. um, and bad shoes and bad hair and scraggly beard yes. which by the way look at my shoes they're not so nice either <laughs> i'm not against that style but and that's the I style mean, scraggly is a word you could use for your beard <laughs> um but yeah, so they, they take that knock and there's a, there's a transition. They go more and more to the left, the Labour Party. Mm. Uh, they, they pick uh, Ed Miliband. They pick, um, what was it, who was it before Ed Miliband? Was it, was it Ed Miliband? Was it the, the one after Gordon Brown? I can't remember. Yeah, Ed Miliband comes after Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown comes yeah. after Tony so, Blair. So, so there's, a, there's a transition period where they go sort of more to the left there. Yeah. Um, and eventually they decide to open up their membership because they're trying to like engage the public more. And they, they get identitarian. They, say, they get more identitarian. They say, for one pound, you can join the Labour Party and vote on its leader. And the old, defunct, out-of-politics, Democratic Socialist Party, whatever they were called, and there's about 500,000 of them or something kicking around the country, a very small minority, they all go and join the Labour Party. Mm. And all of a sudden, they elect Jeremy Corbyn and a whole raft of Labour people. Interesting to note, and as a tangent connected to this, Mm-hmm. Corbyn, unlike, despite delivering Labour one of the worst defeats in, what, since 1935, uh, he stepped down, as of course is the tradition in British politics, they've got a very healthy system where you step down. But of course, being Corbyn, and in my eyes, being the Stalinist he is in his soul, um, go on. <laughs> he's not stepping down completely. He just says that he won't run the next general election for Labour. He's saying that, no, I'm going to make sure that we manage the transition to a new leader. Which to me seems a lot like he's massaging the whole thing so that he can get his allies in. In other words, to keep Labour exactly as it is now. Which I think, if you are a Labour supporter, and I... I doubt there's very many of them listening to this Like, if you're a Labour supporter, much love and... Uh, I, mean, uh, I wouldn't want to be you today, but you know, yeah, no, this has got to be a tough day. Up, eventually the wheel will turn around again. Keep calm, carry on. Yeah. Mm. If you're a Labour supporter, you right now need to make sure that the people who are fighting Jeremy Corbyn and his momentum group inside the Labour Party are strengthened. And there have been a couple of Labour MPs who have quite courageously said very aggressive things in their victory speeches. I think one of them even said that the Labour Party is the racist party and that we need to change. Yeah. And... I, I, I salute those people because it's very hard to go against your party like that. There's yeah. a lot of forces pushing on you. Um, and I really do hope for the sake of Great Britain, for the United Kingdom, that they smash Corbynism and all of its little allies and stuff yeah. and that they return to being a centre-left party. I do. I think that I think this is... Even though I prefer the Tories, yeah. I think that it would be healthy for the British politic yeah. if they had a centrist party that was not tainted by anti-Semitism. Yeah, so in my lifetime, I've never really liked Labour because... Uh, Iraq's in 2003. I'm 13 in 2003. That's when I first really started paying attention to An British politics. Old man. <laughs> um, and I and I and I was very switched off by Tony Blair strutting down the highway with uh, George W. Bush and swaggering their way to some kind of Pyrrhic victory. Um, so I, I and and ever since then, Dude, oh, that was Gordon the hottest Brown, couple of the 2000s. Don't lie. I mean, they were. <laughs> Dude, yeah, they were better than Brangelina, that's for sure. Uh, aesthetically, I just didn't want them to have any guns. <laughs> um, so I, d- I don't have like a, a, a history with Labour that's any, that's any good. But I think my natural inclination is probably uh, as close to as close to centre, as, as close to the Labour of the '90s as it is to the Thatcher, the Thatcher uh, Tories of the, of the '80s. I think there really is. I think any good society is going to need a bit of both of that. Mm-hmm. It needs it needs both of those options to be live, because when the situation changes, in my opinion, um, you need a little bit uh, more push or you need a little bit more pull on the scope of government. But you need the 
scope of push and pull to be restrained, contained, circumspect, yeah, and, and it, serious. Because when more than anything serious, committed to logic more than kudonomics, more than this sort of fashion waft of identitarianism and what so much of Corbynism amounts to, which is just relying upon the fact that it sounds quite difficult to say when you hear that there are children um, in poverty, whatever, yeah. uh, that the immediate solution is not to print money to give it to them. It does. It is difficult to say that, and mm. the more you rely on how difficult it is to say that, the more I don't think you are helping. No, no, I agree completely. Um, and and of course, and two basic two things can happen when you have parties that are that go to the extreme, uh, and when you have two ideological forces that go to the extreme. Um, one is that they pull the other side over to the center, which sometimes happens. I think it happened in Britain now. Yeah, uh, the Tories have kind of moved slightly away from really the center. They want to raise the they, minimum wage. They're they spending a lot of money on stuff on NHS. Yeah, but the other thing that can happen is what's happening in the US, which is they then pull back harder in the other direction yeah. as a result. Yeah, um, that's a problem. You know, in some ways, I mean, you know, not that the, that on every measure the Republican Party in the in America has gone to what we could lazily call the right. Yeah, although I would call the nativist as being more accurate. Um, it, it, it the, and then of course that has driven the Democrats to go further to the left and go sort of you know embrace people like Rashida Tlaib and uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, which is not. Not terribly healthy, I don't think. No, it's really not. Um, because then you get two groups of lunatics screaming at each other. Who can't meet on the grounds of reason. They can only meet on gaining likes yeah, by it's disliking just, the it's other just a power. It's just a power struggle to the death, you know. Um, and there is no room in an electoral system like the United States, or even like Britain to a certain degree, for a third party. Because, you know, the, the way the kind of, you always get faced with a binary choice because it's first past the post. There, isn't, there aren't many proportional things. Um, and so in, when you have a system like that, you really can't have two lunatic parties. You have to have two yeah. relatively centrist parties yeah. with lunatic fringes. It's like being a child. You really want two parents that don't agree with each other. Nightmare if your parents agree with each other on everything. Yeah, that's spooky. Yeah. <laughs> you want two parents who disagree with each other and, who'd, and who never are on the edge of stabbing each other in the neck because yes. they disagree with each other so fundamentally exactly, that exactly. there's just no common ground to find. No, exactly. I think that's very true. Um, anyway, I am, and I, we haven't done that much of it, but I'm so thrilled about this Tory victory because I really didn't think that Corbyn, I really thought that Corbyn was a serious threat to freedom in the United Kingdom. Well, not so much that you didn't think they were going to win by 40 votes, but yeah. I think in your heart I, and your head, no, you're a bit I, I'm, different. I'm such a pessimist that I, I thought, oh God, it's going to be a hung parliament. And then I, I saw a vision of the future where the Lib Dems, so desperate to stop yeah. Brexit, tell us this is get, in, get into alliance with Labour uh, on the condition that Labour revokes Article 50, which Labour would do because Jeremy Corbyn is, was so hungry for, for, for power. For power. And the other coalition partner they need, the Scottish National Party who on a sort of deep lizard brain level, of my, I think my least favorite political party in the world, <laughs> being of Scottish heritage, but being also a very unionist bent, they, they, they horrify my soul. Um, not in a very logical way, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you were worried that the Scottish Nationalist the Scottish Party, the Lib Dems and Labour get in a coalition together, basically in this Ulsterized way, where yes. all that really matters is Brexit. We're going to revoke Except, Brexit. Uh, the Scottish National Party would say, okay, we'll join the coalition, but only if you give us another independence referendum. Yes. And then you have this nightmare scenario where Scotland leaves the Union, maybe even causing Northern Ireland to follow its example, and they stop Brexit. And they have Corbyn as prime minister. That, to me, Goom. was Goom. Would, would be the Goom. end of Britain's prosperity for decades. Yeah, if you have those three knocks over three decades, that's like the Iraq war problem. It's like yeah. wherever such a big mistake happens, there's there's going to be some other effect in the next decade that's going to be terrible. But if you have all those three knocks in the same election, that's existentially disturbing. I mean, look, I. Uh, even though Article 50 probably would have been revoked in such a situation, uh, I do think, or at least there would have been a second referendum, which also would have been a nightmare. Which would throw cancerous clots into the body politic yeah. for the next 30 years. Um, I, uh, what at least would happen, I think, though, is the Lib Dems would then would become the defenders of democracy in Britain with their however many seats they got. Which would be fabulous, because in a way, that party is the closest to a lot of... What I th what classical liberalism? I mean, they rhetorically appeal to the kinds of fundamental values that we at the IRR uphold more explicitly than anyone else. 
It's just that the firstly their rhetoric they all lost their way. <laughs> oh yes indeed. They seem to have walked down the garden path of reason and gotten lost in the pond of preponderance. <laughs> okay, but dude, tell us more about this election in the in the nitty gritty. So we're looking at the the, the, the conservatives with uh, quite a strong majority. Big majority, yeah. What does that mean for Brexit really? Does it mean I reckon I reckon the simple answer is probably the safe one, which is that they go forward with Boris Johnson's deal. Maybe they tweak it a tiny bit, but I don't think Boris Johnson I don't I think he's more committed to his own political success than he is to Brexit's political success. So I think that he'll probably say, Nope, deal's pretty much fine as it is. Uh, we're just going to go ahead. We're going to leave on the 31st of January. They go into a negotiation period. He gets a relatively free trade deal with the uh, EU. And in three years from now, we actually don't really care about Brexit anymore. Some people will bring it up as a kind of thing, but it'll just be an old talking point. It'll be a cultural signifier. It won't be a burning policy question. I think effectively the real drama of Brexit is over. It will still be in the headlines. We'll still be screaming and shouting about it but there's not really going to be any stopping it now. Can you give me a more detailed view on the de facto border going through the Irish Sea? I, I'm really not sure. I, I've gotten confused from all the revisions and stuff that have happened to that, but I reckon that they'll probably say that Northern Ireland will be treated very slightly differently for certain types of goods than... It's part of the union. Yeah. It remains really fundamentally part of the United Kingdom, and but there's I, a little liked, bit of a... I like your theory, which is that in the end... The Republic of Ireland, so the South of Ireland, will be forced to align more with the UK with, than with the EU. Uh, it all does depend on the trade deal they strike with the EU. I think the EU is can I just, of this. Can I, I, I'd like to expand on that. Partly that's because of a uh, relationship that I've had with one of the former heads of the EU's Chamber of Commerce in South Africa. Uh, that name drop, though. Yeah. <laughs> He's a Frenchman. I'm not going to say his full name just now. Um, but he, he got me familiar with... Uh, how tariffs work in South Africa and how border management works in this country. And it's, we are one of the worst in the world when it comes to landed borders and sea borders. I think it's we rank like 143rd out of 190 countries for time and cost it takes to get through our borders. Ouch. It's extremely corrupt as well. Uh, only about the, 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 the amount of... Uh, goods, the proportion of goods that you can reliably say have been properly vetted entering this country is in the single digits percentage rise. Um, and people do feel that when they're buying from uh, retailers in more rural areas that don't have the brand incentive to uh, double vet the goods that they're carrying. So you get poisonous nappies and chips and light bulbs and socket fittings that have uh, not been vetted properly for health and safety regulations. On top of that, you've got a lot of goods flowing through the country where they should be tariffed, but they aren't. I think this has been hugely important in terms of cigarettes. The cigarettes, illicit cigarette trade in this country really was one of the, one of the, for how small that industry is, it punched yeah. so far budget above its weight in terms of corrupting the hardcore of the South African uh, tax revenue service. And it has, of course, been alleged the EFF has possibly maybe links. Mm. big chunks of money from that particular well, they industry. They certainly received a lot of T-shirts, <laughs> many selfies at private dinner functions yes, 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 with, with Verve Clicquot and mm, yeah, so. so on. Okay, but so border control is one of the solutions that a lot of countries have come up with. Uh, as, as part of a suite of how to deal with this problem is to have on-site inspections at the container that the goods are first put into. So if a container is destined for South Africa from China, you have an inspector in China check out that the goods are what they say they are and that they're destined for where they're going. And the better that part of the process is, the easier it is uh, later on to do a little bit less. Obviously, if at any stage you're not doing any checking at all, there's room for manipulation, but it, it allows you to do a little bit less. So the thought is, and and checking the site is one thing, and processing the documentation and coming up with the standards is another. So the thought is that um, the more the UK manages, if it does, to get any goods coming through the Republic of Ireland, either on the way in or on the way out, 
that has a potential to pro- cross that border of the Republic Ireland into the United Kingdom in Northern Ireland. The more it manages to get that sort of at source accreditation going, the more it's going to make, uh, it's, the more it'll reduce the need for any kind of checks on site, the easier it'll make it to have sort of the occasional pullover on a highway but no borders and also the same on the Irish seaside. Um, so that kind of, and, and technology is one yeah, of the reasons they talk about technology is the kinds of ways, I mean, containers are so smart that they can maintain temperature and yeah. uh, humidity levels and pressure levels and uh, gyroscopic sort of not being tipped too much levels. All of that can be measured and that data can be sent off in the same way that your watch measures the steps that you take. Yes, yes, yes. You can with that kind of technology really keep a lot of good track if you're starting at the point of containerization and then just ending at the point where the container's opened up. If and that you only need to do a small portion of it to make sure that yeah. the that the the hardware is not being tanked, t- tampered with. The more you do that, the more incentive you provide for the Republic of Ireland to join into that more effective system if it is yeah. more effectively done, which it might very well be because unlike with the European Union, they've got less competing interests to vie for and they've got a more competent bureaucracy than pretty much most yeah. countries in the world. I, I would also like to add as a sort of a broader point here about uh, the UK's relationship with the EU going forward. Um, it's really not going to be that different. Obviously, there's going to be significant differences. But, for example, think about America now. America does not need a visa to go to the Schengen area to, to travel or to do business or you know as a tourist or that kind of thing. They can go for 90 days without a visa. If you think that the UK is not going to get a very similar deal, maybe even a more generous one, yeah, that's then, then you've got a very strange idea. Um, at the end of the day, I think there's going to be even if they're outside the customs union and the single market and all these things, there's actually going to be a lot more freedom and, and, and openness between the EU and the UK. Um, and that has been the explicit goal of Boris Johnson's government. They've said that we are going to be separate from our friends in the EU, but we're still going to be friends with them. Mm. Um, and so ultimately, I think that while there will be short-term disruption from the uh, these things that we talked about, you know, regulatory changes almost always cause some kind of disruption. In some cases, there probably will be some tariffs and things and some people will be hurt by it. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, but generally speaking, I think there's probably going to remain quite a lot of free trade between them. It just makes too much economic sense and everyone is in favor of it. So, you know. On both sides, people yeah. in Europe really want that custom. Especially I mean, considering the, the Italy's tourism, Spain's tourism in- industry. I think Spain is the most visited. Yeah, exactly. Ibiza is a big tourist destination. Yes, they Spanish are going to be up in arms if if uh, mm. the number the amount of money coming into their tourist traps goes down because some dude in Brussels is getting niffy about exactly. Them. And EU growth is not great right now. So the last thing they want to do is say, well, actually, we want to maintain super protectionism over our you know, French wineries or whatever it is. <laughs> um, there was actually an EU diplomat who made a point to a discussion group I was part of that for South Africa, this is a great opportunity. Uh, so currently we have uh, South Africans a certain amount of wine we can sell to the EU before they cap us off to protect their own industries. Um, they're not going to recalculate that now that Britain has left. So we can continue to sell the same amount of wine to the EU that we used and to. And sell more of it to the UK. Exactly. Hey. Well, this is, so there are many, and of course, if you're a South African who has perhaps some ideas about maybe moving overseas for no real particular reason. There wouldn't be, yeah. The new, maybe the lights turned off. The new point and space, And you yeah. saw. You, you, you just suddenly felt like the need to live in the British countryside. Um, the the British uh, under Boris Johnson are going to uh, adopt the point system I talked about. Yeah. And uh, people from English-speaking countries that are part of the Commonwealth and have uh, can speak the English language fairly well mm-hmm. probably going to have a pretty good shot doing mm-hmm. that. So if you are mm-hmm. a South African listening to this podcast, you're almost Or Kenyan or Indian. Or, yeah, or Kenyan or Indian. Um, that's, of course, the thing about some of the claims about this sort of xenophobia that, that Boris Johnson has been accused of is the resulting British immigration system is probably going to allow more people who are not white into the mm. UK. Yeah, because the main beef that they had was with the Poles. Yeah, with the Poles and the Romanians. That was the big thing they used to scare people. The Nigel Farage talked about all the time was all the Romanians swarming in mm. when they joined the Schengen area. Mm. I mean, I don't think they have yet, but you know, there are plans to get them. Yeah, into and the Schengen. difference there was that you could move without any visa application at all. Yeah, you could get in a truck and drive. Yeah. All the way from Romania to the Channel Tunnel, get and on a totally, train, yeah. and then you know move to the UK, work there. 
Uh, I mean, that does sound like a jaw. Mm. Look, in a perfect world, a lot of open borders I'm not too uh, opposed to, it, but I think in the real world, you do deal with human beings, you do deal with senses of identity and culture and stuff, and people do, you know, if you just have open borders like that. Well, things, my thing, dude, I'm going to... People fight with each other. I'm going to say, I've said it before, Milton Friedman, I think, does have the best line because his parents fled the Nazis. Yeah. Um, and the communists. Yes. Uh, and, or grandparents or whatever it was. And he, no, parents, he was an old man. And, 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 and didn't face much visa regulations. And he was, but th- there were some at that stage because the, the Americans had already started putting in the sort of yellow fever kind of blockages. Yeah, and there was also a little bit of blocking of Jews here and there, I think. Yep, <laughs> which they were, the freedoms of Jews. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the height of American immigration, there were no regulations at all. Mm. There was also no social safety net. Mm. And Milton Friedman's point is as soon as you start taxing people and using that tax money to now build a social safety net for everyone who is in the country, you are building walls. Mm. You're building the, the architecture of those walls. You're determining by how thick the safety net is how high the walls are going to have to be. Mm. The walls might only get put up later, but that's what yeah. you're setting up. You're setting up that nightmare. The, and when Brits, when anyone, the NHS can't support all of Romania as well. Yeah. <laughs> and when and 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 then the rhetoric just starts taking advantage of that. It's and it's. This is not to say that immigrants are um, always great, uh, greater drawers on the social safety net than they are contributors to the economy. Oh, often they're slightly less. Than it's often know. a spurious thing. Mm. It's 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 a country by country thing, but. There is a principle involved, and the principle is this money that we pay into the social safety net, mm. this is supposed to be for us. And then you start making what us is. You start drawing a line around that. You start mm. giving it a definition. And the definition is how much money are we putting into the pot that's just for us. Mm. And I do, think, I do think a nation does exist in a sort of sense that because people believe it exists, it exists to some degree. Um, and when people feel like they've lost control over their country because foreigners are coming in and that kind of thing, people often tend to, in their minds, exaggerate the number of foreigners coming in. Um, in yep. South Africa, this is a very big problem. And yeah. you get very... Well, I don't know. So I think we yeah. disagree about immigration numbers in South Africa. Uh, yeah, well, there are a lot coming in. But I think if you, if you ask the average South African how many immigrants would come in, they probably estimate... Many more than actually have. That may be so. That may be so. But that we. But but I, I like your point about uh, nations being socially constituted because yes. we think they exist. They do, and that and that also makes them matter beyond the economic uh, outline. The, and there the, are there, there there are nativist backlashes. Yeah. Um. And they the the way of maintaining that is that by having an ordered, regulated system, people don't feel like they're losing control of their country, yeah. and so you can actually keep immigration up. And the third thing is the the political motivation of people to bring in immigrants because they think that shifts the demographics of the country yes, in favor of which their has own been so poisonous political in the UK party and in the US. It's like there's something weird about the Democrats in the US and the Republicans in the US both speaking about immigrants as potential voters and we need to figure out how to manage the immigration thing in a way that's going to make us win not by winning by sort of de- demonstrating the best uh, logic or demonstrating the best uh, fiscal prudence or demonstrating the best humanitarianism, mm. but winning by directly sort of exchanging a, a citizenship card for a vote for life. Yeah. And that is so toxic. If you compare that to we, 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 the, the, supposed, the, the furor over the Russians spending $100,000 on Facebook ads. Of Jesus wrestling Satan and saying Hillary Clinton needs to lose. Yeah, the, for, <laughs> the, the worry about foreign inv- intervention in elections in, in, in both the UK and the US, there is explicit cases of politicians saying we need to change our immigration policy because that's going to change the votes. You're yeah. asking for a foreign we, intervention we, we in we your got, election. We got Donald Trump because Ann Coulter stood up and said, if we don't control our borders, the Democrats are going to import 100,000, 100 million impoverished serfs from Latin America and they will vote Democrat for the rest of time and they will erase our entire political and cultural identity. And that's why people voted for Trump. That's, uh, immigration is not actually necessarily about jobs or something like that. It's about raw political power. And part of the reason that Al- Ann Calder's message got so much traction is because Marco Rubio, after Mitt Romney's loss, became the anointed in both in the media mm. on both the left and the right for a moment um, and ran the next Republican National Convention. The system. Because, and, and his argument was we need to 
be good on immigrants. We need to get a path to legal citizenship for a hell of a lot of them and, and sort of allow the numbers to go even higher. And we need to turn the Latino vote into the Republican vote. And that's going to keep yes. the Republicans in power until Jesus comes. Yes, yes. And so then when Ann Coulter flips that and says the Democrats want to do that and she's got all kinds of evidence of Democrats saying that this is what we want to do and that this is what they've been saying since I mean, the first black president, people, Bill Clinton, yeah. was saying things <laughs> uh, on a similar vein at the same time as calling people super predators with his wife when they were sort of criminals. There, there were Democrats who talked about the coalition of the ascendant and how yeah. it was only a matter of time before the Democrats would win forever. Yeah. So there's this nasty there's this nasty way of weaponizing immigration in your favor yes. that invites a weaponization against it yes. that that all should be avoided and it's all somewhat exacerbated by the bigger your social safety net is and I'm not saying you shouldn't have a social safety net but this is another consideration to have <laughs> when when you do have one in place and especially when you're thinking of increasing its size and all of this amounted to um, what it's amounted to. I think we're going to wrap it up. In short, <laughs> we think that, I think we agree that Brexit has to happen. Yes. You liked it from the start in a way. I, I was a little bit unsure for a bit. And then I really got pulled over by the sovereignty question because I think that the EU is fundamentally an undemocratic institution despite its democratic trappings. Yeah. And that for me ultimately convinced me that Brexit was a good idea. I on the day of Brexit, would have voted against it. Mm. I would have voted to remain. But with the sense that what matters more than my opinion is the process, if the majority goes for Brexit, we've got to mm. go for Brexit. And so I'm like Theresa May. We talked on The Daily Friend uh, yeah. about how process is so important. Yeah. And so I want to say, uh, so we agree that Brexit now, after the referendum, the right thing is for it to happen. Mm. It's the less costly mm -hmm. of two options. Uh, there are potential economic upsides. Uh, in particular, South Africa could gain something out of it, so that's very exciting. And its negatives can, with clever policy, be mitigated a bit. Yeah. One of the big costs, I think, is that um, nation the nationalisms of the dividers, the Scottish nationalists, the Irish nationalists, mm -hmm. that this might that Brexit might be won but the union might be lost, not because of Brexit, but just because of how stupid the politics has become. Mm. Um, I think uh, Nicholas urged uh, Labour supporters earlier to sort of really try and squash the Corbynites. I think one of the things the Corbynites are going to try to do is save their own humiliation by continuing to stoke the yeah. anti-English nationalisms and the anti-unionisms uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and... It's a project that can't afford to fail. Uh, the, the, the world is too interconnected for the UK to, to fall apart very much. Also, it's a country that's given us a lot of very good things. Yeah. It's had some brilliant ideas. <laughs> uh, I like Hume. You like Locke. And Burke. And Burke. Especially Burke. I like Shakespeare. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like Shakespeare? Even Britain's detractors like Shakespeare. And I also like... Charles Dickens, As who wrote the best stories about Christmas, and that's where we're heading. Also, uh, you know, uh, because of Shakespeare, we have the best line in Star Trek, which is that you haven't read Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, at which point, I, th I think we have to end now. <laughs> I think this is, this is we're, we're going off to Christmas. Uh, well, with, it's been with, a pretty good year. Yeah. Thank you for listening to us. It, it really... Every victory, every triumph is qualified. Every defeat, no defeat is ever ultimate. Yeah. Uh, as long as they're, 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 they're living, breathing, thinking things around to try and do something about it. Um, this week does feel like it had some very dark moments, mm. um, particularly here in the office. Uh, but, oh, yeah. but I think it's a, strong, it's a strong note to end on. It's a, it's a, a lot of the nonsense was cut through. Mm-hmm. Um, in in by our northern neighbours, and uh, I I I, I want to finish from my side for the year by saying Sol Plaiki, uh, one of the founding members of the the ANC, was a huge fan of the United Kingdom, hmm. and he started his political career and defined a lot of his life by appealing to the better angels of their nature, to look down on little South Africa, and. And from their position of power and their position of influence and their position of, of having the, the privilege of entertaining reason and having politics that has more often beaten reason through reason mm. than sort of being beaten through bluster and noise to appeal to them 
to use what influence they have at what rate they are of, of available to spend it on us as South Africans and to please caution us and influence us away from corrupting the system of ownership of land in South Africa from 1910, which yeah, set yeah. us down a century's path of Terminal. awful, mm. awful misery, wretchedness, true wretchedness. And here we go in 2019, starting that path again. And with the UK doing its clever little thing today, I want to say, please, my northern neighbors, please look at us and take us seriously and give us the chance of your honest evaluation of whether you think we're doing the right or the wrong thing. And if you have influence and you think we're doing the wrong thing, please apply that influence to us. Indeed. Yeah. I just want to say thank you to listening for listening to us this year. Uh, I know sometimes we can wrap it on a bit, but I hope we've entertained you. Um, it's been a lot of fun making this podcast, and uh, Gabriel and I, I think, have, have had many interesting discussions here. Yeah, in and around the podcast. One in of the, one of the, the more yes. pleasurable things about this podcast is the conversations we have about the podcast. And then we, around the, the we, one of us will say, no, 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 save it for the show. Save, save it for the show. For the show. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, you know, keep the flag of liberty flying. And uh, we'll catch you next year for two, 2020s. My goodness, we're living in the future. Um, for 2020s, two crickets in a thorn tree. Grr, grr.